I'm hoping to get out of this is a is an episode in which I do not say you know at the start of every phrase that comes out of my mouth. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by not turning our microphones on until halfway through the podcast. I'm your host, Charles Bowinger, coming to you from cloudy Washington, D.C. With me on the line from an undisclosed location, my co-host, David Wheel. David, how's it going? Um, I'm doing well. In my undisclosed location, it is also cloudy and rainy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the internet is very poor, so hopefully we can get through this without any more unnatural pauses than are caused by my, uh, unnaturally slow speaking style. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, just, those of you listening to this podcast can't quite tell, but it really does look like David's in a bunker this week. There's just a couple of rather bare looking shelves behind him. Uh, I see no source of natural light. I have no idea what he is, but the connection is cool. Try not to jinx it too much. Uh, now, David, I, as a as, uh, as here, I have spent the last week trying to get tickets to go to Black Panther and failing. Um, I finally got a ticket for a 7 o'clock showing tonight after having tried and failed on numerous occasions this week to get tickets. Uh, this never happens to me. I don't understand why this is happening because normally theaters have so many showings of big movies that it is not possible to show up and have something be sold out. And after having arrived in person and been shocked that the next four hours worth of showings were uh, sold out uh, last weekend, I've been checking um, the, the ticket sales in advance this week to see if there are any showings I could get to after work, and they've all been sold out. And I finally found a ticket and at a place where you reserve seats and it's actually going to be a nice wheelchair accessible seat for me to get into at seven o'clock this evening. So I am so excited. That's that's awesome. I um I actually want to look now uh on Box Office Mojo and see how it's doing. It's um, made three hundred and twenty million dollars as of like yesterday, I think. That's, I that's might have awesome. just been on Box Office Mojo right before talking to you about that. It's entirely <laughs> possible. That would be a, that would that would be typical. Typical. Yes, I Charles. mean, I, I bring it up in part because that's one of those life experiences where you wonder how that is still a problem in this day and age. Every theater has a million screens, and they have a million showings, and somehow they are unable to meet the demand for this movie. I have not shown up to a film and had it be sold out. In many years, and uh, the last time that happened, it was at my little random indie theater that only has one screen for each movie. Yes. Yeah. I'm, yes. Uh, I've really been tempted to look at what Fox News has to say about this, but I'm also kind of scared. Um, I, uh, I've noticed a fair number of conservatives actually like it. You know, they're... They're, they're relatively happy with it in part because, um, so I haven't seen it, uh, you know, but I've, I've read a fair number of the think pieces, um, about it. And my understanding is that there, there are, all, I mean, my understanding is it's just a genuinely really fantastically good movie. 
as a narrative and as a bit of sort of political um, uh, you know political it's just that, well political and cultural uh, revelation you know for people to see some of these themes in a mainstream movie and to see themselves in uh, a mainstream movie in this in this way so everybody likes it because there's something to like for everyone and even you know conservatives who might be not even might be like conservatives who are you know neck deep in the kind of race baiting culture uh at fox news uh can see it and read into it that like sort of neoliberal incrementalism wins out over black liberation you know that the t'challa is uh a moderate royalist i mean you know he's like how much uh, uh how much of a sort of revolutionary can he be if he's actually the the prince uh and he kills the guy who comes up from nothing you know who who claws his way literally i guess uh claws his way up from the streets and espouses violent revolution to overthrow a corrupt world order like if that guy gets killed in the end uh, or whenever he gets, I, again, having not seen it, I, I don't want to talk too much about it, but I, I was going to say I, that I sounded like a spoiler I, alert, but neither of us has seen the movie. So I'm not sure how that happened. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I guess, uh, you should, you're assuming that he, def- you're assuming that the bad guy gets killed and you're, and you have heard that his background is, well, this. I'm actually assuming since, cause it's like based on a comic book. That okay. nobody ever dies for sure because mm-hmm. they always get like resurrected and come back over multiple, you know, decades of the releases of the comics. But I mean, obviously the hero wins, right? Like that's not a spoiler. Hmm. I mean that I, I'm one would anyone who uh, is mad at at David for what he's just said as a potential spoiler should go back and listen to any of our episodes where we've talked about narrative structure, particularly his bonus <laughs> about Wonder Woman, and you will learn something. But it, it's something. What, you will learn like, not to listen to us when we talk about movies or anything, or really. you will learn to assume. Yeah. Well. So when you talk about people seeing themselves in the movie, Something that I've always found a little interesting is um, the difference that left and right have when they talk about role models in television and movies. Because mm-hmm. uh, I grew up, of course, hearing people on the right talking so much about violence in movies and television, how it was responsible for violence in the real world and all of these things. And people on the left uh, would be the free speech ones saying, uh, you know, First Amendment, we're allowed to put on movies and, show, and shows that are violent. You don't have evidence that says it's really making people more violent in a lasting way, et cetera, et cetera. And then when people on the left would call for greater representation in the sense of diversity in role models, people hmm. on the right would say, no. <laughs> they it's would just a movie. It doesn't matter. Right, exactly. And so you've got the two sides basically making the same point, which is that people need role models. But their tribal, uh, where the lines are drawn tribally, have have forced them to uh, get a jumbled message when they both believe somewhat the same thing. 
Uh, so you end up with people on the right who are basically saying they have to be a good role model, and we're assuming it's a white role model that will show all of those minorities how they ought to act. And people on the left saying, well, the good role models are going to be somebody where you can see yourself as the person, uh, because it's difficult, and I know this as, you know, as, a, as a white male, that I never had to think when I was little about somebody who's like me being in a position of authority on a show or a movie. Everybody in the main position of authority was like me. The idea that that would create an image in your mind that if you didn't look like that, you couldn't be the person in authority didn't even occur to me. But the more that I've talked to people who are not white males about something like that, the more it sounds like that is a real factor in childhood development for a lot of people. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, and it's funny here because you, you made a very good point that I hadn't, you know, I hadn't seen that juxtaposition before of kind of pushing back on the right wingers for uh, to the extent that any of them pushed the violent video game narrative, you know, deterioration of our culture. Oh, what will, what will it do to the children? You know, if they push that angle, then by that same logic, absolutely, as you say, they would have to buy into the um, notion that, um, you know, for a changing America, the young children who are coming up, in our society deserve to see their own faces or people who represent them uh, displayed in these sorts of heroic roles so that they could have role models to, to look up to in pop culture. Uh, what is, so that's a really, really, really good point. Very well, very well put. But uh, what I find, you know, where I'm still stuck is in evaluating what it means for someone to be representative. So, you know, someone like uh, Captain Sisko in Deep Space Nine. Incredible character. To my knowledge, not one that... You know, like, like King... You know, Shakespeare, it's now trite to it's just cliche it's just obvious that you could stage one of those plays and have any number of identities placed into any number of the characters uh you could have you could have any race in any role you could have and, and it would obviously potentially mean something different to the audiences who are who are witnessing it, who would then think about their own assumptions about race and whether their, their preconceptions and prejudices of race or gender or sexuality or whatever uh, could make the roles work or class, you know, for example, um, that if you had, well, anyway, I don't, I don't go too far down that rabbit hole uh, in part because Captain Sisko, is he representative who is he representative of? A black person can see him and say, oh, incredibly sophisticated, wise, charismatic, heroic figure. And he's black. I'm black. This is a role model for me. To me, that 
that, okay, that, that that's obvious. Uh, but there's another level where there's this critique of, uh, on a cultural level and a class level that Cisco, uh, may have, may, to put it extremely crudely, uh, talk white hmm. precisely because he's so sophisticated that that doesn't actually reflect, uh, it doesn't reflect something that an African-American would really see themselves in, right? There's this kind of critique, not necessarily of Cisco, but of culture in general, that, um, and that it, it, the people from different class backgrounds need their own quote unquote identities represented, not just their racial identities. And I find that notion very complicated because um, there's some logic to it, but at the same time, it seems to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to aspiration in society. You know, the goal to me should be to lift everyone up to a point of, you know, to say, you know, anyone from any background can learn to speak like Cisco. Right. What, what's interesting then, about that, do you recall the episode where you meet Cisco's father? Uh, well, no, I wasn't actually. Oh. I, mean, I, I realize I'm bringing Coles to Newcastle here in, in referring to Deep Space Nine and your internet presence. Oh well, but please go on. <laughs> there's a there's a, there's a, a bit. It, it's, I'm sort of surprised that you referring to some of it that way. Um, I was immediately drawn to the fact that Cisco's father, whom you meet in um, a couple of episodes when they go to Earth, when they're basically doing a communist infiltration um, uh, allegory, and uh, it has to it, it, and. You meet Cisco's father, who is they're from. I think he's from New Orleans specifically. But I believe they're in Louisiana. His father is a chef, and his father does not come from a background where he's speaking like Cisco. Um, mm. His father is a, a little bit more rough around the edges, a little bit more traditional, even just in the Southern style of having lots of um, lots of Southern styles of, of phrasing. And as you were saying this, that made me think, of course, not knowing if you recalled Cisco's father, um, made me think about what that would say about Cisco's background and what he did to then learn to speak like that, as you say. Uh, but I've, th this approach is an area, aside from the simple knowledge of Star Trek, this is outside of my area of expertise. Uh, yes, that's clearly the salient... The salient deficiency in understanding that the, <laughs> the two well, of us I are would say, by I would is say insufficiently that... precise understanding of Star Trek lore. Well, I, I, I would say that um, when you brought up Cisco, I actually thought you were going in a different direction, which is that Cisco is the most morally compromised of the main Star Trek captains uh, because Deep Space Nine covers a war, and there's the, the best episode of Deep Space Nine, which is often considered one of the best episodes, if not the best episode of Star Trek 
there's an episode called In the Pale Moonlight where Cisco does some. The entire point of the episode is that Cisco does Cisco does some really morally questionable, if not outright awful, things, and has to learn to live with it. And uh, so that's actually where I thought you might be going by where they put their first black captain was to have him be morally compromised in that that manner. No, I wasn't going that way. I mean, I, right, I obviously you didn't. Make that you went critique, a different way but more more to the point, uh, just talking about. Um, I mean, uh, you know, my best friend from high school uh, taught. You know, he taught for America in Baltimore uh, for many years, and through that experience, became. You know, he was able to share with me some uh, sort of well-articulated, not just sort of experienced, but actually you know, well-articulated um, descriptions of of this problem that that many people face coming from a variety of cultural backgrounds, where in order to succeed along the traditional mainstream path that is set out for them in the United States of go, you know, stay in high school, do well in high school, get into a good college, go to that good college, do well in that good college, get a good job. In order to succeed along that path, they have to uh, exhibit certain traits and speak and self-present in a, in a set of ways that are far more constrained and limited than so the idea goes, you know, mainstream white America is willing to acknowledge. And in particular, the, one, of the ma- one of the major burdens on um, them, whether it's, you know, kids in Baltimore or, um, you know, kids in South Texas or wherever else, is that their particular local culture, which is often um, the, the difference between the sort of road to success uh, way of self-presenting and speaking. And that local one is, it's not only determined by race or ethnicity, but also by class. It's the, the local identity. In in order to keep your friends and your family and keep their perception of you and keep your ability to interact with them, you have to maintain that, practice. You have to be able to talk street. You have to be able to, you know, show yourself not to have changed. Otherwise you burn bridge potentially, right? This is, this is the idea. You know, you, you burn bridges at home because you, you make yourself look like you think you're better than everybody you grow up with. Uh, you're, you think you're better than people who didn't climb the ladder that you're climbing, that sort of thing. That, that fear creates pressure on those people that makes it that much harder to climb up the ladder, you know, because they're climbing up the ladder. They're learning all the tricks that everyone else climbing the ladder is learning. And at the same time, they're having to deal with this mental tension and social tension and emotional tension of what they are potentially leaving behind. And, and, or, you know, in order not to leave it behind, they have to deal with this sort of double consciousness and code switching, you know, it's called where um, I was just about to say, isn't the term that phrase switching? Yeah. I mean, maybe the best example of that is the um, that clip of Obama. Oh. I don't know where he was, but it was you know some university uh, locker room, and he's you know going down the line, uh, and he like shakes hand with the with like the white assistant coach, 
you know, he's like shakes, just shakes hands very formally. And then the next guy in line is a basket is a black basketball player and Obama, um, clasps hands and, you know, pats the guy's back in this much more relaxed way. And it couldn't be more, it was a, it's a perfect visual indication of, uh, code switching. I guess a dap, you know, is the term to show my, my dilettantism expressed not only in guns and uh, military lore, but now it's well, different. Dilettantism expressed could be the name of this podcast. Yeah. Or, or possibly, dabbing. or possibly our band name. Dab. Dab. I think dab. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, yes, and it. Of course, when I heard about code switching, it it I as a concept that was something I sort of identified with. Not in the racial dimension of a culture, but in the variety of nerd cultures that I'm involved in. Because I've known that there are situations where I'm with somebody else who plays Magic the Gathering or Dungeons and Dragons. And there are all of these terms that come from the games that are not, um, they, they have other meanings. You can use them in life. Uh, one example, which we use a lot in Magic, which comes from poker, is when you say play to your outs. And I've used that expression assuming everybody would know what it means and then realize that that's not actually an expression for other people. They don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, so there is a, there's a way of speaking that I do with anybody once I learn that they play any of these games that I can't do with normal people. And there is a sort of code switching that goes on with the subject and the white way to speak. It makes me think of uh, another thought that I've had about um, conservative versus liberal in sort of a general sense of how they, not the tribal markers we have, but how they tend to manifest in certain attitudes. And um, not just in America, but in general, a lot of conservatives, uh, when they're, when it's sort of the, the bad side of conservatism, not the, um, the proper Edmund Burke-inspired uh, conservatism that is highly principled, there tends to be a belief on the part of many conservatives that there's one correct way to do things, that, that you have to do it this way. And that is where I think um, the, the uh, that's an area where I believe that the code switching, the this is the correct way to speak, it comes into play because that kind of conservatism doesn't recognize that you can have different I mean, dialects being a more extreme example, but different ways of speaking that are correct because of how language works. They would just know there is one correct way to speak. It just so happens to be the way that they speak, but there is just one way, one correct way to speak. Just as there is one correct way to fall in love, it has to be somebody of the opposite gender. There is one correct way to do X, Y, and Z. These are the markers of success. Yeah, what's... what's um... Interesting, just one of the many things that is interesting and troubling and confusing about our present moment in uh, American society is the extent to which uh, what you were saying about using terms from Magic the Gathering, you know, the, the, the present, the, the, the content of particular phrases, uh, uh, figures of speech, turns of phrase, and the reliance on those either f to make a precise point or 
more, I think, troublingly for a huge, diverse republic and society like the United States uh, to establish identity, to, you know, establish group affiliation. Uh, you know, the problem is that not everybody necessarily knows those terms, you know, and the classic problem is sort of what you were referring to, where if you didn't speak in proper grammar or you didn't speak with the right upper class accent, then the elites would look down on you and know that you were not, you didn't belong uh, and they would push you away from power. That seems to have largely subsided. I think it obviously hasn't completely subsided, but uh, yeah, that was, that was what Jacksonianism was about. Right. The Jackson was a country bumpkin. He was not of the established plantation owner, uh, polished class. You know, he was a relatively self-made man who uh, clawed his way up through the you know through military service, and the common man, which is to say, obviously white people in America, uh, and white immigrants. This is right. I say obviously, but it wasn't obvious because white didn't mean the same thing then. Because right, it didn't uh, include everybody that we now consider white. It didn't include everybody we now consider white, not by a long stretch. And the fact that he was, um, if I'm not mistaken, he was Scots Irish, and was looked down upon by the, you know, by the wasps, uh, that gave him credibility, and it and it gave him a tremendous source of support and, and love and affection by all sorts of immigrants. Uh, Martin Van Buren, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you know, he, my understanding was Martin Van Buren grew up speaking Dutch. You know, his first language was not English. And he was part of this Jacksonian movement, uh, which empowered the little people. And you know, it's like, you literally know, in Martin Van Buren's case. He was very sure. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Um, always trust Charles to come in with the the pun assist. The complete non sequitur pun pun assist. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, and this is this is getting us into another segue. But there's a there's a there was a great article that I read about um, you know Trump is no Jacksonian, which makes the point that and I may even talked about this with you before, but, uh, it's a relatively thorny topic. So I might've shied away from it as opposed to blundering into it as I am now. But, um, you know, I made the point that Jackson would have hated Trump. Jackson would have despised Trump and people like him because, you know, that was really the opposite of Jackson's whole, um, whole identity as a politician and identity as a, as a person. Um, and part of that was this way in which he opened the door to politics, to political participation to all these people we would think of as obviously 
white today, but who back in the day were, uh, you know, were excluded because of their ethnic background and even, you know, well, even like language abilities. And that's to say nothing about Andrew Jackson's personal experiences that made so, him incredibly opposed to. This may be a moment who, when the. Are you having connection issues there? I'm just going to assume you're not. Yeah, I don't know if you could. I don't know if you could hear any of that, actually. No, I uh, actually didn't hear any. Everything sounded just fine from my end. It, only visually did I see a look on your face that indicated something had gone wrong. Okay. Uh, I was saying that uh, Andrew Jackson's personal experiences also made him, uh, you know, not somebody who would look well on anyone who would ever just declare bankruptcy and move on from <laughs> what they're doing and leave all the contractors you know, holding the bag. He would be furious at the irresponsibility of Trump. Uh, right. I mean, obviously, Andrew Jackson was an awful person in his own way. But the stuff that Trump is trying to appropriate doesn't even really fit. It only fits with the image Trump is trying to inculcate. Right. And and this is one of the frustrations I have about this moment in in politics uh, and society that, you know, right-thinking people reject Trump's Bannonism, you know, and they identify that with Jackson. So they, they, they identify Trump with Jackson partly because Jackson is, or uh, Trump is attempting to co-opt Jackson, um, and partly because it's just easy to say, oh, Jackson... Um, you know, uh, Jackson didn't care about the courts. He didn't care about the rule of law. He was a white supremacist who um, expelled the Cherokee on the Trail of Tears. And therefore, clearly there's a connection. Clearly, yeah, of course Trump would go for Jackson because Jackson was such a terrible racist. Uh, and these distinctions are not made. But obviously, you know, it's like, if we're thinking seriously about our history and our society, yes, it should go without saying that uh, saying the Jackson having said uh, the Supreme court or at least allegedly said the Supreme court has made its decision. Now let them enforce it and gone ahead with the, at that point, illegal uh, expulsion of you know, the native Americans of you know, the Southeastern United States um, that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing for many reasons. The fact that he did bad things and was a bad person in those respects does not change the facts of what he did for the health of the United States democracy. You know, the role that he played at the, at the inflection point of turning, and maybe there would have been a different inflection point, but maybe there wouldn't have. You know, if, if not for Jackson maybe the United States would have uh, sort of coalesced into an even more opaque, aristocratic, oligarchic society than it in fact became. And if not for his role, uh, you know, maybe history would have taken a very different and much worse course, even by the lights of progressives. And, you know, it's just frustrating that um, it seems like we all... Anybody who is not 
100% on board with the Trump aggressive xenophobic nationalism agenda just has to obviously, you know, obviously agree that uh, Jackson was terrible and... Um, Right. It's the inability we often have to acknowledge that a person can do good things and bad things. Right. And somewhere in there, because we always feel like we have to render an ultimate judgment that this person was good or bad. And well, when I mean, you we have to render that ultimate like... judgment, it gets in. Well, I'm, I'm saying that a lot of people do necessarily feel that way. They do feel that we have to come down on, was he a good president or a bad president? Is he someone to honor or not honor? Do we right, put the think, statue up or do we tear the statue down? Right. But I think a lot of that is driven by social media. That more and more people are communicating with more and more people. But because we're not digital beings, we are analog beings, We are there's ultimately a limit. And if there's more communication with more people, it means the content of the communication is going to get squeezed. And so... Um, Squeezed by there, Russian trolls, you mean? I was I was hoping that we, you would take that segue. Oh, uh, why? Whatever that do was you me, mean? That was me setting up the ball for you to spike into what we were actually going to talk about. Today. I I like I like when our show can just start off with something completely random and uh, go somewhere with it. But uh, yes, now that you mention Russian trolls <clears throat> interfering with our social media discourse. David, what do you think about Russia's interference in the 2016 election? Um, I find this, yeah, I would, I would love to, to read really good representative <clears throat> polls that would reflect whether and how many Americans are able to make the distinction between Russia, as a matter of state policy, interfering in the election. That interference being targeted at sowing general confusion and um, acrimony. Targeted towards helping Donald Trump win. And, you know... Um, not necessarily being the cause of Trump winning, but being a cause in an election where the margin was so close that basically any variable would have changed the outcome. It's like, how many of these things do people think about and how many of them are, how many people are able to uh, sort of split these variables apart in discussing the Russia issue? Because it really does seem like the case. It seems to be the case that there are. And we've talked about this before. The Louise Menches, uh, that tribe is not. Unfortunately, is not that small. There, there do seem to be people who make this out that the Russians elected Donald Trump, and that is obviously not true. Americans elected Donald Trump. We have to acknowledge that. As Americans, we have to acknowledge that that is the case. Uh, and having acknowledged that, then we can take the next step of saying, okay, what is it the, that is wrong with our society that allowed the 
Russians to find this discord and um, tension that is, you know, tension is good. Tension is good for a democracy. It's an, I mean, it's inevitable. And the absence of tension would be as, you know, whichever, was it Federalist 10? I always go back to Federalist 10, but I, I should actually go back and read it because I don't remember if this reference was in it. But, you know, the, uh, it must be Federalist 10, but, you know, the, the, um, um, this analogy between uh, liberty and factionalism to air and fire. The one way to prevent fires would be to eliminate all of the oxygen. But in that case, the, the cure is worse than the disease. In the same way, for a republic like the United States, uh, a vast, diverse society, even in colonial times, um, the, you know, the outcome of factionalism and sectionalism uh, is a negative one. But it's impossible to avoid it without taking away liberty. So, you know, it's 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 inevitable that there's tension in the society. But that tension, you know, how is it that we got to this point where it's taken such a crazy turn that people were uh, listening to and interacting with and sharing these, you know, these memes that were that had their origin in Moscow? You know, and you had this. You, see, you must have seen this interview with the woman in Florida. Mm, I don't think I did. Uh, there's this there's this horrible, depressing uh, two and a half minute video of this woman in Florida who was the president of some group on Facebook, some like local, you know, pro Trump group, and because she was the Facebook administrator, she was responsible for that group sharing a bunch of content from this other Facebook group that was part of this uh, Moscow-based internet research agency, IRA, whatever it was called, um, that we've now heard so much about. And a reporter comes to her house and says, "Um, did you... Yeah, are you following the news about this organization? You know, were you aware that the group whose content you were sharing were Russians? And she just denies it. Hmm. And she seems not to be able, and this is going back to my earlier point about, you know, it'd be great to see you know, good public opinion data on, on this stuff. <laughs> but like, she just cannot understand that there is a difference between the reporter saying you are a Russian and the group that you were a part of are all Russians. The difference between that and the reporter saying a group that you interacted with a lot on Facebook were Russians and the content that you were sharing was produced by Russians. And she just, you know, because she could not seemingly understand that these were two distinct claims and that the reporter was not making the former claim and was making the latter claim, uh, she just denied it outright. And it was just, it was just awful. Mm, that sounds depressing, but entirely predictable. Yeah, One exactly. One of the problems that we have with Russia's interference in the 2016 election is that it's a term that encompasses a bunch of different activities. And it's very easy to confuse 
which one you're talking about at any given moment because people will say, well, there's no evidence that Russia interfered with the election. And when they say that, they mean no evidence that they tampered with voting results because that's one thing that it would could mean to interfere with an election is to hack the voting machines and change the results. That's not what's being alleged, although it has been alleged that they attempted to access some of the machinery that could have done that, but there's no evidence that they succeeded at it. That's one element that could happen, but that's not the one people are almost ever talking about unless you're trying to deflect from it. We say, oh, Russia didn't, Russia didn't change the result. Because sometimes you want to confuse change the result in terms of putting out propaganda that a few thousand people in Wisconsin believed versus change the result as in actually alter the vote tallies. So that's one extreme that is not what's being said. Then there's the Russian interference by hacking Podesta's emails and leaking them and doing that in order and giving it to the to Trump, well, offering it to Trump campaign people and eventually leaking it in order to get the media to talk about that, which the media obligingly did in order to change people's opinions. Then there are the social media troll posts that they were working so hard to put out. And then there are the ad buys on Facebook. And these are all different in their own ways. When you're talking about running these fake ads and so forth, some people will say, well, clearly Russia didn't interfere very much because they only spent X amount on ads. And those ads were only seen by X people. That was only one of the four parts we just mentioned. And uh, when you want to talk about them exploiting our divisions, I mean, the ads were just one relatively tiny part of it. What I find fascinating about the social media troll posts, which seems to be, um, I mean, in terms of how people have been approaching this, that seems to be the bulk of what a lot of people are talking about when they talk about Russian interference is a lot of these troll posts because, and then this is stepping aside for a moment when we say Russian interference, the sort of things that they can do again and again, rather than something more one-off like hacking Podesta's emails and that they did not successfully alter any vote tallies as far as we know. When you talk about social media troll posts, what's kind of fascinating to me is you now see, and I, 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 I must confess, I too often look at the replies on Twitter posts um, because sometimes you find a really great remark. Sometimes you actually do find something really good. Sometimes somebody says something really clever. The problem is those little diamonds in the rough are surrounded by so much nonsense, so much awful stuff. And now people, of course, accuse each other of being Russian bots and, and all of that. But what sort of what, what the conclusion that I've sort of reached is it's hard to tell the Russian bots from the people who are just actually awful people. And that's because the Russians didn't really create anything new when they were doing this. They just did what we were already doing to ourselves and amplified it. That was the weakness they found. We already talked to each other like this. We were already nasty people on social media. They didn't make us that way. They just saw it and tried to notch it, to, to ratchet it up a little bit. Right, and that, that that's the basis of my point before that um you know you did uh, it was great the way you broke down those different aspects of what we might 
more constructively. It is like we, we, when we talk about something like Russian interference, it would be much more constructive to refer to those more specific categories so that we're not confusing ourselves. And uh, it's good that you, uh, you know, went to those and, and pointed them out. But again, you know, that last one you just made was uh, what I was highlighting myself, which is that we should have the conversation about Russian interference in part to distinguish between what we can and can't hope to uh, respond to and prevent. Uh, because some of the more, you know, some of the better faith critiques of the whole Russian interference narrative coming from defenders of the administration are that, you know, was it any surprise, like, was it any shock that to anybody that um, heads of state that were allies of the United States didn't want Trump to be elected, right? Is that interference? Is that meddling? You know, them sort of signaling uh, that they preferred one candidate over another. I think you know, you'd have to really, uh, you know, have confused yourself and gone deep into a rabbit hole of just wanting everything to be, you know, um, everything to be laid at the at the door of Vladimir Putin and uh, him being the puppet master pulling all the strings to not to be able to acknowledge that that's something we should just expect and that we aren't hermetically sealed away from the rest of the world in a way that that degree of quote unquote interference wouldn't just happen. And in fact, it could be a good thing um, for the public to evaluate. Yeah. You know, people who, whether naively and stupidly or, or not wanted to have a more uh, amicable relationship with Russia, if they saw Trump as the vehicle for that development, they as Americans have a right to vote for that outcome. You know, they may be wrong for all sorts of reasons. It may be a bad outcome, and it also may um, not be the right path towards that outcome, whether the outcome is, is right or wrong for American national interests. Uh, yeah, but it's it's a it's within the range of you know non treasonous uh preferences for individual Americans to have um, and, but you know going going back to the accusation of of treason to other Americans like as you say uh, and as I was trying to say, the truth is that our divisiveness and rabid partisanship and uh, these walls going up where we no longer try to understand what, where people are coming from or what they're trying to say, you know, that's, that's where Trump arose. You know, he didn't, he didn't come out of, he didn't fundamentally come out of Moscow. He came from our own broken political culture. And uh, I, I just, I said we there, but again, I would repeat that, you know, this is a, um, this is a wound that has mostly been inflicted on America by the right. Uh, that this is coming from a Republican Party that seems to increasingly see 
Um, as we see in in in, uh, in um, Pennsylvania, right, with Senator Toomey talking that, about uh, impeaching the judges. Exactly, this yeah. recent decision that the uh, the state supreme court declared that the um, state districts would have to be redrawn, and the uh, outcome of state elections that, if I'm not mistaken, have pretty consistently had resulted in Democratic majorities in terms of the overall vote totals. But um, despite that, because of gerrymandering after 2010, have resulted in very lopsided Republican majorities in the actual congressional delegations sent to D.C., um, you know, his response to the Supreme Court of the state effectively saying uh, the people who are sent to Washington should actually reflect the the numbers of votes <laughs> cast in the state, right. right, is we should impeach the judge. And the Republican Party, uh, in general, seems to follow that kind of tack. Like, it doesn't matter what, what the people actually want. All that matters is the extent to which we can use the reins of power to rewrite the rules of the game so that we can stay in power and ram our agenda through, uh, you know, through Washington. And I'm not saying by any means that the Democrats have never exhibited that tendency or, or anything else, but um, the scorecard is very, very heavily, you know, on the side of, of Republican uh, bad faith, in my view. Right. I mean, much as you say, uh, of you know, the Democrats aren't perfect, it, I'm sort of reminded by when we, during the 2016 election, conservatives would, of course, be confronted with the argument that how could you be so partisan as to support such a horrible person like Trump just because he's a Republican candidate? And some people on the right would sort of snap back, oh, like people on the left would take some big principled stand and throw an election over something like that. <laughs> well, people on the left didn't nominate Trump. And you could argue that under the right circumstances, they would nominate someone like Trump, but they didn't. And the right did. Right. So I mean, that's what we're looking at right now. And when you when we talk about the the awfulness that we see coming out of especially social media posts, the very fact that you can't tell at a glance, if it's a Russian bot or not, is is itself telling. There's a thing on the internet called Pose Law, which is that a parody of fundamentalism can often be mistaken for the real thing because they're both absurd. And this has been extended to many other areas, and political tribalism is one of them. How often do you see an exchange online where somebody is making a joke and they're taking seriously by somebody else who yells at them and says all these awful things about them for believing it. And they have to respond, you know, I was joking. Right. That's a very common problem. And when I look at, so James Comey is on Twitter and <laughs> he used yeah. to be on Twitter under a different name, but now he's on Twitter under his own name. And every time he posts the first 10 or so replies will be from one person with some weird name, just posting a bunch of weird memes and all caps yelling and things about how awful Comey is and how he's a traitor and all of this stuff. And you, you know, there are people, and when I look at those, I don't know if those are Russian or not, because I would be perfectly willing to believe that a lot of Americans were just are just waiting for Comey to post something so they can post all of that. 
You see right. this a lot of times when somebody famous tweets something political. There are people who are just waiting to jump in and do that. Yeah, well, I'm, some of them are doing it uh, because they're trying to advertise their, you know, penis growth pills or, <laughs> or weight loss teas or right. or whatever stupid clickbait thing. Um, and that's... <laughs> I think that I think that having those people able to comment on on the tweets of uh, famous people who are and Comey is my 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 sense of his uh, Twitter is that a lot of it is very kind of weird impressionistic stuff about a lot of pictures. Like, yeah, it's like yeah. I was in New York, the Statue of Liberty, the sun may be setting in New York today, but it will never set on America. Right. His, like... his tweets are basically that or him quoting some remark by somebody very principled about character that is clearly right. subtweeting something that Trump did that day. Right, right. But the point, point I'm making is, um, you know, he's not necessarily providing some kind of precise and insightful idea to be digested by the body politic. Um, but we're just, we're sticking with him because he's the example that, that came up. Um, I think that having people posting nonsense below that is sort of the 21st century equivalent of the slave riding in the Roman chariot mm, with saying you're mortal saying yeah. you're mortal you know whispering in your in your ear that was like, that was our this most will pass accessible you, reference you shall so die. <laughs> well it's like whatever kind of you know super hot uh fashion exercise model uh posting some picture where they pretend to have just woken up in a certain, uh, they just woke up and they here they are making breakfast and I'll just take a selfie and, and post it to my fans to show how humble and, and fantastic I am. And then having someone post nonsense underneath that is, uh, is kind of great because <laughs> it reminds us of how crazy and stupid people are. Yeah. Lest we, you know, lest we forget that we are, among those people, and we too, despite all of our highfalutin grammar and degrees and uh, white mainstream educated neoliberal code talking, you know, we too are can be morons. Right. No, that's there was an XKCD comic some number of years ago where it was the idea was a virus yeah. that um, makes it so that when you post a comment to YouTube, it reads it back aloud to you. <laughs> and the idea is that somebody posts a comment, hears it read back aloud, stands up, walks outside, sits on the stairs and just says, I'm, I'm a moron. I <laughs> didn't know. And that's, that's kind of how a lot of Twitter is. Um, and I take it result... back. We're not, we're not all morons. Randall Monroe yeah. is a genius. He is not a moron. But if you think about Twitter as, as, as the parade of morons, and it explains all the much more why Donald Trump would be the king of it. 
he has uh, done quite well with that. Now we are. It, it, it shouldn't bother me. It shouldn't surprise me. But just the way that he talks, it is astonishing how simplistic and repetitive he is. I mean, it, it is really astonishing. Um, and we were just talking about how uh, having this increasingly large log of our speech patterns uh, does not necessarily give us a platform to criticize other other people's. Well, maybe would... it does. I mean, I've gone back and listened to some of these, and even at our most incoherent, we don't sound like Trump. That, and that was where I was going. Yeah. That's where I would have gone if oh, I'm I sorry. were I actually you... a, an effective speaker, <laughs> effective at communicating my ideas. Um, but yeah, Trump is just on a different level and it's, it's really remarkable to see some of these, well, it's not, it's not always fair to read, uh, extemporaneous speech because they're different types of language, but, um, you know, but even Bush didn't talk like this I mean, Bush, who was pilloried for how, you know, how uh, stupid and flighty and shallow he was. I mean, obviously we've, we've gone over how that wasn't fair, but uh, anyway, whatever. This is, this is a, this is a stupid hole to fall into. You were about to say but, tangent, weren't you? There are no tangents. No, I was, I was you picturing, I was picturing myself falling into a hole and, uh, and trying to climb out of it. So mm-hmm. here I am. That's also a pretty good metaphor for the 2016 election. <laughs> yeah. Step one is we got to stop digging. Yeah, but Trump does not believe in that. Now we're uh, running out of time here, which is actually sort of unfortunate because there's still so much. I feel like we barely even started talking about Russia, which was originally going to be the focus of this episode. Well, um, there you but, go. But that again, I think we had a wonderful conversation for both halves of it. Maybe we'll have to return to this at some later point. But I think there's just, plenty to talk about. Yeah, just to to get you a a quick question for you, though. One of the things that's been brought up is that fake social media posts, buying ads, some of that is not so dissimilar from what the U.S. did during the Cold War in its efforts to swing elections when socialist communist people could be coming to power in certain places. Do you think... What is your take on that comparison? Do you think that that activity on its own is acceptable? Is it, is it in some sense wrong, maybe legally, morally, for Russia to be interfering in the sense of having people pretend to be Americans saying awful things to result in an election result that they want? Or is that just a legitimate thing and it's on us as Americans to only respond to good arguments? Is it acceptable for us to do this in other countries and for Russia to do it here? And it's on the people to analyze what's being said. Well, I think you're I think you're mixing two registers here where at the level of international relations things are either legal or illegal. And morality is kind of irrelevant. Uh, what we would want the Russians to do is also irrelevant. 
uh, if the Russian, I mean, ideally the Russian people would really have a say in their government, but uh, it's also argued uh, that the numbers are fake, uh, but that a significant portion of Russian society actually does support Vladimir Putin. So um, there is a, perhaps it is the case that the Russian government policy actually does reflect, um, you know, the will of the people in some sense. But in any case, what the Russians do out of their state interest is what they do out of their state interest. And it's not a war. I mean, nothing, you know, it's a, they didn't do a war crime. They didn't do anything, um, you know, that violates the Geneva convention. So, uh, you know, that is what it is. Now, obviously there's this, the 13, you know, the indictments of the 13 Russians, like we, we have our own laws and we can, uh, punish people or attempt to punish people who seem to have broken those laws. But then again, that gets us back within the United States. And so, you know, talking about our own, uh, national interest and, um, then it sort of makes sense maybe to talk about right and wrong, but, uh, I would put it again in the terms of just, just interest. You know, we, we want to have a strong society where we debate and engage in political processes of adjudicating the great questions of the day and coming up with some kind of solution, however temporary to the social tensions that exist in the society. And so I'm now actually attempting to answer your question. Uh, what the Russians did was attempt to make that process more difficult by adding smoke and darkness to that process. They were not, you know, they were not clarifying the terms of the debate. They were, just injecting noise and fear and lies into the national discussion. And um, other people may, other people certainly do have other opinions, but I think that yes, America did do that just, you know, lies and hysteria. Uh, but people forget how threatening communism actually was. And um, did America do wrong by propping up right-wing dictators across the world? Certainly. Did, it, did America do more wrong by doing that than the wrong that would have resulted from a communist takeover? Unclear. How many of those cases, you know, in how many of those cases was that the choice? Also unclear, particularly unclear to me because, you know, I don't know that much about Latin America or, um, you know, the, the murder of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. And I, I don't know, you know, I know a little bit, I don't know enough to really get into it. Um, but I do know that, you know, the, the intention was to preserve, uh, societies where there was a path to, if not an actual democratic society where 
um, as long as communist revolution was off the table, the society could basically get what it wanted. And that wasn't what we put in place in many societies, but it's clearly what we wanted to put in place because where we had the power, that is what we put in place. And when we only had the CIA, you know, we screwed up and, and had right-wing dictators, um, who did terrible things, but, uh, you know, I think it, I think it's, it is just utterly nonsensical to equate America and the Soviet Union, uh, in their behavior in the Cold War, because intentions aren't everything, but they are something. And the intentions were clearly different. And, um, you know, and that, and that's true of then. <laughs> and then was then. Here we are now. What does the Cold War matter? <laughs> you know, what is, what is America's history, uh, from, you know, 80 to, well, actually, I just saw something that, um, this, uh, historian Odd Arnie Westat, uh, dates the Cold War back into the 19th century <laughs> for somehow. And it's Harvard historian, but, um, Anyway, it's, uh, you know, even if we just talk about, you know, the Cold War being 30 years ago, it's still ancient history compared to you know, what are these park, what do these kids at the Parkland High School care about 30 years ago? You know, what does it matter to them what American Cold Warriors did? I mean, it may matter well, a lot. Bear in mind, they were all born after 9-11. That's my point. Yeah. That's yeah. my point. Yeah. So anyway, you, you, <laughs> you tried to give me a sort of a, cl a, cl a clear question to get a short answer to cram into the end of the thing, but off I went on a, on a tear. I thought it was my moral responsibility because I was not acting as a state to, um, to give you one last shot at that. Yeah, we, uh, we will be returning to this Russian topic at some point. I, I think it would be fertile ground for another discussion to talk about the proper methods of argumentation in a polity to ensure that you don't end up with a kind of polarized tribal nonsense that we have been unfortunately stuck with lately. Uh, but for now, we're going to have to call this episode uh, quits. How do you? I don't about care that? what your intentions are, Charles. I'm going to pull this conversation into a into a you right can, wing. You can you can keep going. I'll just edit it out after, after <laughs> a certain point. I. You know, who has the power to affect the result that they want right now? It's the guy who edits the podcast. So we got to find him and get him into 1600 Pennsylvania. That's that is that is true. I am using this episode to launch my presidential bid for 2020, by which point I will be old enough to be president. Oh, there so, you, go. you heard it here first. Yeah, you heard it here first. Uh, I got to go register charlesbobinger2020.com. And if I don't end up winning, I can just use it as a uh, as an optometrist site. <laughs> All right. Goodbye, everyone. We'll see you next week.